Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, and today with us, we have Chris Cotillo, Red Sox beat writer for MassLive.com. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am uh, happy to be on and and hopefully uh, talk about some things that are better than the horrible baseball that I've been watching for the last few months. <laughs> yes, we have a lot on the plate today for our listeners. Going to talk about your online workshop that you're starting up for aspiring journalists, a little bit about your journey, and then uh, it'll be a good conversation. So to get started, as we always do, Chris, how about you just take us through your journey through sports media from when you first realized that kind of being in this industry is what you wanted to do until how you ended up at Mass Live writing about the Red Sox? Yeah, for me, it's, you know, I, it's, uh, it's a bit of a different journey. It started when I was in high school and uh, trying to break stories and break in that way. Um, I was able to have some really awesome people that were able to help me out along the way, agents and general managers and um, other sports writers who gave me advice on how to do it. So, uh, when I was a junior and senior in high school, I worked on breaking MLB stories and was lucky enough to get a couple. Um, and from there, um, ended up working for SB Nation for five years uh, part-time while I was in school at UNC. Um, and so doing that, covering baseball nationally part-time was great experience, obviously. Um, going to the All-Star game, going to the winter meetings, things like that. Uh, and then when I graduated, full-time job opened up at Mass Live covering the Red Sox. I grew up in Massachusetts, so it was a perfect fit, and I applied and um, got it and started two weeks after graduation. I've been there since, so um, it was, uh, you know, kind of the unconventional journey in that, you know, I never worked at the college paper and or did, um, you know, the traditional internships, but um, I found that, you know, trying to throw myself into the fire is, um as quickly as possible early on was really beneficial and um you know it was kind of a perfect mix while I was in school of learning about the stuff and the classroom aspect of it and being able to do it in real life at the same time yeah wow okay so I think my first question the most important question where'd you grow up in Massachusetts um from North Bro which is right outside Worcester so in central mass um and so that's uh the most famous for being the home of uh, Mark Fidrich, uh, the bird. Well, I grew up in uh, Hingham, so we got the Massachusetts boys chemistry going on. But uh, There you go. There we go. So going back to your journey, the most unusual journeys are the best ones to talk about, obviously, in my opinion, seeing as my podcast is all about, you know, interesting journeys. And, okay, so, like, breaking news in high school, that's pretty awesome, and you're talking to agents and managers. Why when you were in high school, what was your kind of your thought process to deciding to do that instead of doing, as you said, kind of the classic adventure of writing for school papers and working your way up there? And then how did you even, I mean, how did a high school kid basically get in touch with all these guys and get them to give them some information? Yeah, as I've always said, social media was the great equalizer. You know, it was, for me, it was um, an opportunity where, uh, you know, everything, every, everybody was connected all of a sudden, you know, you didn't have to be credentialed. You didn't have to have longstanding relationships to uh, be able to, you know, connect with these people. So, um, you know, probably annoyingly to start, I've learned over the years to be less annoying and less uh, persistent, but trying to find agents or general managers or players on Twitter, on LinkedIn, um, on Facebook, even back in the day, um, and trying to connect with them that way. Uh, for me, you know, I always wanted to work in baseball growing up. It wasn't uh, necessarily always going to be this track, but 
um, as I got into it, you know, I, I enjoyed writing um, and kind of excelled at it during school, during middle and high school, and it, and it became kind of a natural fit. So, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly, um, you know, how agents or those types of people or executives choose who to give the information to, but um, a lot of what I heard was, you know, someone had to help me when I was young, and uh, hopefully, you know, I could do the same for you. So, that was obviously really appreciated and it really launched uh, a career that has become hopefully more multifaceted than just trying to be the insider on Twitter as it was at the beginning. Um, but it, it was, it was really fun. I've always been completely fascinated with the business of baseball, you know, growing up when the winter meetings were going on or the trade deadline was going on, you know, I couldn't wait to get home from school and see what moves were made. I almost liked that aspect more than the games themselves, just because, I found it so interesting, and that kind of applies to how I look at all the other sports. Like, I love NFL free agency, NBA free agency, you know, and those kind of compressed formats. So, um, it's always been, you know, loving the business of sports and um, kind of always wanted to be a GM growing up, but I think that's a little little harder than becoming a beat writer. So, um, I, I ended up doing this and um, kind of have a front row seat to that business, which I, I love still. Mm-hmm. What was the first scoop that you had? There's a, there's a few that were, you know, minor ones. I started, you know, with some independent league ones. Um, I remember, like, at the end of a couple guys' careers. This is 2013, 2014. Carlos Zambrano signing with, like, the Long Island Ducks, independent league team, or Vladdy Guerrero, I think, signed with the same team. Um, but once it got to, you know, the major leagues, Jason Kubel getting traded to the Indians. I don't know if people remember that name, but former twin and Diamondback, he get traded to the Indians, and I was able to get that. Um, and then there's a couple big ones my senior year in high school over the offseason where Ricky Nolasco getting uh, or signing with the Twins and then Doug Fister getting traded to the Nationals. So, um, you know, those were, those were a lot of names that people haven't heard in a long time because I was like, any of those players are still in the league now. But back then they were big moves, and I was lucky enough to – and try to snip them out and um you know i've always said looking back at that so long ago that it would have been really easy for the people in the industry the established insiders obviously ken rosenthal jeff Passon, john Heyman, bob nightingale those guys to find out those stories on their own and they didn't have to cite some random high school kid um <laughs> who had it they could have just said you know i'm hearing from a source but you know the the protocol is to you know, cite whoever had it first. And those guys um, are the reason that I really was able to launch a career, honestly, because they gave me credit for it. And they said, you know, this kid actually had it first. And we're really, um, you know, happy for him that he did it. And they, they could have just completely buried me and, and not uh, not ever cited it. So, you know, those guys were always so good as, as you know, mentors, not only in the, you know, face-to-face giving me advice when I did run into them at events, but just seeing how they went about their business, seeing how they, um, broke things and trying to understand just by following them on Twitter and reading their work, what their process was for things, I think was really important. For sure. And I mean, that's, you know, that's incredible. That's like an incredible resume almost to have as, you know, an 18 year old or a 17 year old. So when you were heading to UNC to go to college and you have all this stuff under your belt, did you have like a specific path in mind as far as what you wanted to do with that? Or were you just like, I'm just going to keep on, you know, getting as much information as I can and see what unfolds? Yeah, no, I did the insider thing for most of college and, and tried to do it, you know, while while attending school. And like I said earlier, it's, it was a really beneficial thing to me where I was able to take classes like media law and then 
have an agent call me and threaten he was, that he was going to sue me over something I broke that he didn't agree with, you know? So, but I, I had just been in a media law class two weeks earlier and I knew, you know, where I could stand and stuff like that. So I think that was a unique experience that, um, like I said, being really thrown into it and, and covering, you know, a major sport and, and major league baseball, obviously, um, or, you know, take an ethics class and, and then realizing, okay, I have this scoop, but, you know, is it ethical to really break it? If it paints somebody in a bad light, something like that. So it was, um, you know, I think, you know, the kind of obviously you, you go to school, you learn these things, and then you're supposed to apply them once you get into the field later on. But for me, it was happening simultaneously, which was really cool. So, you know, I was a journalism major with a reporting track. Um, and, uh, it just, I knew that, you know, I wanted to be covering baseball and in some way, shape or form, um, you know, like I said, at SB nation and MLB daily com as a site manager for a few years there part-time. Um, and then, uh, at the end of school, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, and then this job opened up right at the end, but, um, in terms of covering a beat, it's, uh, it's the one I always would want to cover, obviously growing up here and I wanted to live back in Boston. So, uh, it ended up working out perfectly. Yeah, you want to talk about learning on the job. I mean, that's, you know, you go to class and then you immediately think about afterward, all right, how does this apply to this thing I have in my phone right now? So that's pretty, mm -hmm. that's, honestly, it's freaking dope. Um, how did you end up writing for SB Nation? That was uh, uh, my junior year. It was right, uh, right around uh, junior prom. I remember, like, starting to talk to Justin Bopp, who was still there and was, was was my boss who I really appreciated working with for the whole time there, but and just reached out to them and said, you know, hey, I um, have interest in this. And this was even before I was breaking things. Can I write for this MLB Daily Dish website and try to help you cover things? And um, you know, showed my Twitter, which I was doing, you know, news and rumors for baseball. And at first, you know, we just went on as a uh, unpaid writer. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and that website is cycled through a lot of people um and, and i guess the last seven eight years i mean there's a lot of people who have gone on to you know really big things june lee who's with espn um uh, is was one of the guys that i work with there and you know sb nation has such a good history of, of pumping out so many people that you see everywhere now um you know <laughs> just thinking about you know the baseball staff there grant brisby he's at the athletic and um you know, Rob Nyer was there and Mark Norman Dan and all these people. So, um, but it was just more of a, uh, a hobby, uh, when I was in late high school, um, and reached out and started doing that kind of unpaid. And then it turned into once I started breaking things, you know, people at SB nation kind of noticed and said, Oh, this, this random blogger for one of our sites, cause there were, you know, 300 and something sites is actually breaking big stories. So, um, after a while, I ended up being the site manager there and in charge of all the content. And, and that was an awesome experience, too, being able to be kind of an editor and in charge of everything and in charge of a, a team of five or six people. There were challenges that came with that, but, um, you know, running a budget and all that kind of stuff. So that was a really cool experience in, in the management side of things, too. So it was, um, you know, SB Nation is, is a lot different than it was then. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of criticisms and, and things that have gone on with it in the last couple of years. But for me, it was like almost a second college type thing where, you know, I learned so much just doing that. You know, they gave a lot of flexibility to us to do it. And, and you know, there's a lot of people there that um, helped me along the way, obviously. Yeah, it sounds like you really had a lot of 
I mean, you ended up becoming a very well-rounded sort of journalist between the SB Nation stuff and your insider breaking when you left UNC. But Mass Live is more of a, in my view, Mass Live is more of a traditional newspaper online outlet as opposed mm -hmm. to something like SB Nation, which is more like blog writing. And I know you said you were a journalism major at UNC, but when you started writing for Mass Live, was there any adjustment that you had to make from going from writing for SB Nation to something more traditional like Mass Live? Yeah, I don't think it's, you know, that much more traditional. I mean, we have a, our sister paper in the Springfield Republican, but we are, you know, really online centric. So, yeah. you know, knowing about SEO and knowing what people are going to click on and, and knowing, you know, keywords and uh, embedding tweets and Instagram posts and knowing all that kind of stuff, like I, that was, you know, all basically the same. The big transition, obviously, is going from covering all 30 teams and feeling like you know a little bit about a lot of teams to having to know everything about one team you know I grew up a Red Sox fan but once I really get into it I didn't pay more attention to the Red Sox than I did the other 29 teams during college because I was number one not here number two just trying to cover all of them so if the Red Sox made a trade I put I put as much attention or effort into it than you know if the Diamondbacks and White Sox made a trade or something like that so to me um, it was kind of recalibrating myself to really know what was going on specifically with the Red Sox and the ins and outs of it and um, you know, that took a little bit of adjustment. And, I, and my first season on the beat, it was actually easy because it was 2018. They, I, I, one time, one day I actually calculated what their record was in games I covered, but they, they had like a 770 winning percentage or something. It was like the first, their, uh, my first road trip, they were like, I think they won all nine games on the road trip. And uh, they obviously went on to win 108 games in the World Series. So, it was kind of easy to just write up. Oh, they bludgeoned another team tonight and then kind of learn, learn about, you know, the guys and, and try to get to know guys in the process. But um, it's a competitive beat. It's an intimidating beat. You know, you walk into, I think a lot of people would walk into the clubhouse and be intimidated by the players that are there. I think that's, you know, kind of the obvious thing. But for me, it's intimidating walking those first few days, intimidating walking into the clubhouse and seeing the guys that I grew up listening to on, um, the radio or watching on TV in, in terms of, you know, the, the reporters, you know, you walk in there and you see, then you're, you'd know, you know, Dan Shaughnessy and Sean McAdam and um, you know, these guys that have been, you know, doing this for a long time and have such an Nick Cafardo, you know, the late great Nick Cafardo, guys that have institutional knowledge and have covered this team for so long and it's your first day. And it's like, all right, now you're going to have to try to compete with those, these guys. And you know, it's almost impossible. So, um, but yeah, that was it. Just trying to figure out, how to know everything about a team, how to know everything about, you know, the minors and what guys' personalities and guys' skill sets and advanced stats on them. And um, even, you know, I'm three days away from the end of my third season. Obviously, this has been a lot shorter and a lot different than the first two, but um, I still don't think I, I know everything there is to know. No, of course not. We're always still learning us journalists. I was going to say that probably the biggest jump from working for like a big kind of big picture blog like SB Nation and then going to a team beat is probably just the actual in-person interaction because you're, you're not interviewing guys in locker rooms after games working for SB Nation for the most part. But it sounds like you didn't really have that much of an adjustment with that as much as it was everything else. No, that was, that was too. I mean, I, I, the Red Sox uh, are very strict in who they credential. Other teams are a little looser, but you know, when I was at SB Nation, the Red Sox wouldn't credential us for regular season games. Um, MLB's in charge of the playoffs, so I actually did get to go to the World Series and do the World Series in 2013 at Fenway, which was an incredible experience. 
my senior year in high school and I was just doing that. That was awesome. And I, I ended up doing the all-star games, but you know, just a handful of regular season games, I think at Camden Yards and at the Trop, um, where, you know, SB Nation was able to get credentialed there, but heading in, um, I had never covered a Red Sox regular season game at Fenway and it is a totally different thing. Um, you know, doing things in person and trying to navigate a clubhouse and, um, and then obviously the travel is much different. I, I made two trips a year with SB Nation just to the all-star game and the winter meetings. And I love those. And, you know, not in 2020, but previously it's like we, uh, we made, you know, I, I did 40 road games last year or, or 35 road games last year. And um, that we were planning on doing the same this year before, you know, COVID screwed everything up. So, you know, the travel and, I think the big thing is I've gained an appreciation for um, just how long the season is. You know, I remember, and this is like a cringeworthy moment for me that I still think about because I, I hate that I even said it. So at my first winter meeting back in 2013, I was talking to some beat writers and I, I didn't mean this in a, in a you know condescending way or anything, but, these guys were, you know, Jeff Passon was a member of the group, who obviously is a national insider and a few beat writers, you know, from a certain team. And we were talking and the guys were saying something like, oh, it's so hard chasing down all this information and trying to get guys to get back to you or something like that. And I said, yeah, well, imagine doing that for all 30 teams, like coming <laughs> off like, you know, and just, I, that's not how I meant it, but you know, after a while later, you know, Captain texted me and said, Hey, I don't know if you remember this comment you made, but you know, you really shouldn't diminish the work that guys on beach do because you've never done it and they work harder than anybody. And I, I remember it just, it was one of those things that slipped out. I really didn't mean anything by it, but yeah. I totally sounded like an ass, ass for saying it. I understand. And I was also 18. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and I, I thought about that a lot since I've been on the beat. It's like, yeah, I, this, these guys do. I mean, I we get tired and we complain about the grind of an 162 game season. Um, you know, because and we're traveling all over the place, but you know, the players actually have to play and, and be athletes 162 times a year. That must be crazy. So, yeah, the be- people on on beats work extremely hard. I think it's harder now than ever for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's really hard to separate yourselves from your comp- competition in a time where you can't get one on one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, everything's done via Zoom. Um, you're not traveling, and, and so outlets can't really separate themselves by putting money in traveling because there's no point to traveling because you're just going to go there to, to Zoom again, you know, whatever city it's in. So, but uh, yeah, it's, I think, you know, I've learned over the years that, you know, yes, it's just one team, but the amount of work you need to pour into making sure you comprehensively cover that team is, is a ton. So, um, Shame on eighteen-year-old me for having that slip out, but I'm glad I'm glad I'm uh, on this side now and understand how stupid that comment was. I can guarantee you, you're not the only one who has thought to himself or herself, "Shame on eighteen-year-old me." So I think you're all right. I think you're doing okay. But, yeah, um, that's good. One of the so you what is what's interesting to me is about is partially what's interesting to me is that your first season was like. It's 2018, and it literally could not have gone better in any respect. I cannot think of a single thing that happened during the right. 2018 season. That basically wasn't perfect, and then 2019 was not as good, and then this year is obviously terrible. So, I mean, what has it been like as a beat writer to go from a season where everything has gone right to go to a season where everything has gone wrong, excluding the outside world circumstances? Yeah, I think that's you know a great question, and it's really interesting to me because 
um, I didn't know, like, how – what is the effect of a really good team versus a really bad team or a middling team? And um, for me, with the Red Sox, it's like – and there have been points in the last two months, obviously, where there's pitchers who I've never heard of that are pitching, basically, that, that really test this theory. But I'll say, in general, when the Red Sox always keep it interesting. I mean, there just seems like there's some organizations – obviously, the Patriots are one of them. There's always something – there's always a crazy storyline. I mean, you look back and, okay, so the the World Series run, all of 2018, was arguably, and this is, you know, crazy to even think about, the most boring time that I've, <laughs> since I've been on the beat. Because they just, they won, they bludgeoned everybody. After the year, they didn't add anybody. They brought back the same exact roster. They obviously brought back the general manager and the manager, um, you know, there there weren't any game sevens. They won in four in the ALDS. They won in five in the ALCS, and they won in five in the World Series. Like, there was dramatic moments, for sure. There wasn't any – I mean, they clinched the division, like, on September 15th or something like that. They clinched the number one seed. There wasn't any buildup. Um, it was just – they were so unbelievably good. Like, the, obviously appreciating how good they, was, they were made it not as boring. But compared to what we then saw – in 2019, you know, a, a season where ups and downs and they're, they're trying to fight their way back into a playoff berth. And then just to think about what has happened in the last calendar year. And I think Chad Jennings at the athletic wrote a good a story. I think it was him the other day about, you know, just what, what exactly has transpired just about a year ago, they fired Dave Dombrowski, which seems like about 50 years ago, honestly, but you go back to like, all right, that happened. And then you get into the winter and, Rick Porcello leaves and um, Brock Holt leaves in free agency. And then the huge Cora news, which came out of nowhere, that scandal, the Red Sox are then implicated in a scandal that didn't turn out. They really did much. Cora is fired right before, right in January. Uh, Mookie Betts and David Price are traded the week of uh, spring training um, begins. Ron Renick, he's hired as a new manager the first week of spring training. There's more guys in and out. Chris Sale is Tommy John. Eduardo Rodriguez has COVID and a heart condition caused by that. He misses the whole season. Then spring training suspended, um, obviously. And this is, you know, this is where it gets into like the bigger picture stuff. But COVID hits this unprecedented season. And then they are, for most of it, they've been better lately, but the worst team in baseball. It's like, you know, you can't go more than two weeks without like a shocking big story. And that has kept it, you know, it's great to cover because there's always something good. People always say, you know, oh, it must be really horrible covering a team this bad, which at times when you're watching the games and they're getting, you know, beat so bad like they had been for a few weeks there in August. Yeah, I mean, there are times where it's like, what am I going to write about tonight? But when you look at the big picture and like uh, I said to you before, uh, you know, you started rolling. There probably is going to be a managerial search here in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a crazy off season where, you know, are they going to make big trades? Are they going to make free agent signings? Um, does Alex Cora come back? I mean, there's just always so many incredible storylines with this team and that's how it always is. Um, but the stretch since I've been on the beat has definitely been in terms of three year stretch of craziness. I think even in a franchise history this long, I think it's, I think it's probably up there um, in terms of just how nuts it has been. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think that between everything that you just rattled off there, very impressively, I might add, I don't think anything else can really top it. It's not that, it's not that impressive. It's been my whole life to cover <laughs> this stuff, so just I should a know it. Yeah, I feel you. 
Uh, so, yep, now you're taking all of these experiences that we just talked about and you're wrapping it up into an online journalism workshop for prospective journalists. And I think, I believe the first time I saw you mention it was sometime last week. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of, how about you just kind of walk us through why you decided to do this? Yeah, I get a lot of calls or I get a lot of emails and DMs from high school kids and college kids that, um, you know, want to know how to get into it because they know that I'm in just about I'm 24, about to turn 25, and I've been doing it, you know, since high school. And um, and it's someone who's relatively their age that has found a path in, and, and people want to know, you know, how to do it because there's so many people that want to get in, and it's such a competitive industry, and there's so many, uh, so many people who have such passion for it. So, um, with the Red Sox out of the playoffs, it's not like I'm going to really need to cover many. I'm not going to cover any games in October, um, and so I, I figure this would be a good way to, to, uh, you know, spend some time. I think the interest has been great. You know, there's been a lot of people that have reached out, and, um, and people ranging from ages 14 to 45 so far, and people wanting to get in and and try to find out, you know, how to navigate this industry. So. I'm, um, you know, I'm a little nervous about the teaching aspect of it. It's not something that I, you know, I'm not a professor or anything. My roommate's a high school teacher, so I'm going to get tips on, from him on how to, you know, he's he's saying the other day, you're going to do icebreakers, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> is that what I'm supposed to do? So it's going to be more talking about my experiences and, and having a conversation about really the ins and outs of it, hopefully bring on some guest speakers. So yeah, it's going to be a six week program with two different sessions, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and I'm really excited about it. You know, I'm excited because I'm definitely going to learn from, you know, there, there's no way that I was as advanced with social media as kids who are in high school right now, who, um, you know, really grew up with it even more than I did. I, I see even a shift between myself and my little sister who's a sophomore in college. And she knows, you know, all these different apps. I feel like I'm 70 when she's talking about some of the stuff. So, um, I'm looking forward to it because I'm going to learn from them too. And hopefully, uh, can impart some knowledge of, of my experiences. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing I want to teach, and um, and this is, you know, maybe obvious from my path, but the, is that, you know, there's no conventional journey. You know, there, there was for so long where you had to do things a certain way. And I think there's people in the industry that don't like that you can have an unconventional journey. And I'm not saying that I'm some big success story. I mean, I still have a long way to go and I'm still, even when I look at my competition on the beat, a long way to go behind some of the you know great writers and great reporters that I work with every day at Fenway. So, uh, but but I mean just to just to find a way to break in and um, you know and and find people that are willing to help you out along the way, I think is really important. So I'm excited for it. Um, it should be a fun way to spend a few weeks, and hopefully it turns into something where uh, we can keep it rolling and do another session after that, and um, hopefully help people. Uh, because like I said, I think, you know, the huge part for me was so many good people helped me out when I was, I had no idea what I was doing at 17, 18, 19. So a lot of people are helping me out now that I'm 24 and still have no idea what I'm doing. But um, I hope that, you know, I can at least share something that'll help people out who are interested in trying to do this. Definitely. Was it always, was this something that you had kind of had back in your, in the back of your mind for, you know, a couple months during the season or did you just wake up one morning and you're like, you know what, this would be a good idea. Yeah, no, I've been thinking about it for a little while just because, um, you know, the, the off season is obviously, you know, a time where, um, 
not a lot's going on, especially if the team's not in the playoffs. So, um, and I have, we've had more off season than any baseball writers in the history of covering the sport have in the last you know year, because we had the regular off season and then the COVID off season. So, um, now the fact that there's not going to be baseball again until March, it feels like we're getting cheated, but, um, it's going to be a good way to pass the time and something I'm looking forward to pouring a lot of effort into because, um, it's, I'll have the time for sure. Absolutely. And then just for our readers or our listeners rather's sake, if they wanted to get involved with this workshop, what should they do? Yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Cotillo, uh, C O T I L L O. Um, and my email is on there. It's by B Y Chris Cotillo at gmail.com. Um, there's spots available. There's been a lot of interest, like I said, but we still have spots available. Starts uh, Tuesday and Wednesday and it's going to be, you know, six weeks and then a one-on-one call where uh, hopefully I can review work and, and give personal advice and stuff like that. So um, that'll be, uh, that'll be uh, starting up next week. And um, I, hopefully it'll, uh, it'll be something that people really enjoy. Absolutely. And anybody who's listening and wants to be a journalist, it sounds like a great first step. Our guy, Chris definitely would help you out. Now on to this no good, terrible Red Sox season. It was awful. We have talked about it a little bit already. It's no good at all. So I think that we should just look forward. And you talked a little bit about the managerial search. Um, Specifically, I think that there's a lot of, you know, fun imaginary rumors for Red Sox fans going around that they actually think the Red Sox are planning on bringing back Alex Cora once his one-year suspension is up. How much stock do you put into that idea? And in the, in my opinion, likely scenario that they don't do that, who might they target? Yeah, I think it's, I, I go back and forth almost every day on that, honestly, because I I don't really know. Um, I see I, – I think, honestly, if they wanted to do it, they it's on a platter for them to do it. I mean, okay, let's let's flush this bad season down the drain. Um, Ron Renneke is not somebody that any fans are attached to, or it seems like, you know, he's not some um, – he feels like a bridge option. He was on a one-year deal. You know, that's clear. Um, he's at the end of his career after four decades in baseball. I think he's actually done an okay job just because it's so, almost impossible to navigate all the challenges they've had to navigate this year. And Ron's a very nice guy and he's handled really delicate matters really well. Um, it, he was, you know, <laughs> uh, doomed with the roster that was there once Rodriguez and Sale were down. So he's done the best with what he's been given, honestly. But in terms of Cora, it's, it's one of those things where it's an easy way to drive fan and get fans to be interested and back quickly. Um, you know, Cora is not like he has anything lined up. Uh, I did hear at the beginning, it's not a hundred percent abundantly clear that he wants to do it. Maybe he thinks a fresh start is best for him, but it seems like the writing is starting to be on the wall for it a little more. So I don't know if I can't even give a percentage on it just because I, I don't, I don't know. There's so many factors where the Red Sox want to do it. Most importantly, would High and Bloom, who was not the guy that hired Cora want to do it. I don't know about that. Would Cora want to do it? I don't know about that. So, um, but in terms of, um, I think it would be a lot harder to do this at the end of a regular 162 game season, uh, because all of a sudden, you know, the Astros cheating scandal is, is the least of anybody's worries. Um, you know, I mean, the people are kind of forgot about it and, um, there's a lot more pressing issues than in the world than, than that now. So, um, I think it's easier uh, from a PR perspective to bring him back. Um, but in terms of other candidates, I think, you know, you're looking at the obvious raised guys, 
Matt Quattraro is a guy, the bench coach who's been mentioned a lot. Sam Fold is a New Hampshire native who I think they'd love to talk to. Um, and then there's some guys they interviewed before they hired Renicky. Mark Kotze is one former Red Sox. Um, Luis Urieta, bench coach in Arizona, kind of a, a, an unknown prospect of someone they liked a lot during the interview process. John Gibbons, um, former Blue Jays manager. So who knows if they go through that same cycle? It seemed like they were always going to go internal for this one in the bridge year option, but um, it, it'll be very, very uh, fascinating to see what they do with Cora. They can't talk to Cora until the end of the World Series when the suspension's up. So the timing will tell us a lot about how they're going to do it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, obviously, I mean, just aside from the managerial aspect of things, there are approximately a thousand different directions the Red Sox could go this offseason in terms of their player personnel. They could sell everything. They could keep some guys. They could go out and spend a lot of money. So, I mean, what, in your view, is the most likely path the Red Sox are going to follow once their season is over? I don't think they're going to tear it down. If they wanted to, then they would have traded a bunch of the guy, a bunch more guys at the deadline, whether that be Christian Vasquez or um, Matt Barnes or Valdi or some of these guys. I think, you know, I'm Bloom's going to look at virtually nobody as untouchable, like they've, like you know, he said before. I think you have a great core in place there with Verdugo, Bogarts, Devers. Now Dahlbeck looks like he could be a piece moving forward on the pitching side. Tanner House has been great in his first two starts. They're going to bring back Martin Perez. They're going to bring back Evaldi. His contract is two years left on it. Nick Pavetta looked good in his first start. He'll obviously be in the Knicks once next year begins. Um, you know, what I guess is they build around that core um, and maybe look to make a couple creative moves. You know, do they go after Trevor Bauer in the offseason? That remains to be seen. There's not too many attractive pitchers other than that. Um, you know, one theory that I've seen is that they go try to uh, try to sign J.C. Romuto. Uh, the Phillies catcher and uh, trade Christian Vasquez for a pitcher. That would be an interesting way of doing it and trying to be creative. It seems like a bloom type move. Um, you know, I think the whole MO last year was we're going to find diamonds in the rough, whether it be Matt Hall or Jeffrey Springs or any of these guys that have been uh, really struggled all year. You know, I mean, there's, um, there's been a lot of, a lot of pitchers that will probably never pitch again for the Red Sox or in the majors uh, that have come up this year, and we're seeing them every day. Um, but I think the Red Sox have so much room to make um, a lot of moves. I, I was talking to a couple of beat writers last night. There's like 15 guys on the 40 man roster that they can designate for assignment with no problem. I expect those moves to be, you know, th those additions are going to be bigger names, whether it be free agents or, or trade candidates. I'd expect that, um, you know, they're going to be really, really, really active and, um, that starts, you know, the next couple of days. So obviously there's a lot of uncertainty about the financials and, and if there's going to be money to spend or what free agents will get in this economic climate. But, um, you know, the Red Sox are a big market team. They should be able to spend and, um, they'll, they'll be active in free agency for sure. Yeah. I keep kept on muttering to myself, big market team throughout all of the Mookie Betts negotiations and eventual trades. So personally, as a Red Sox fan, I'm not going to get my hopes too high there, but it sounds like they're not going to trade Xander Bogarts, which was really my only like, please don't do that. Move no, they're not. <laughs> Thank goodness. They that won't. makes me feel much better. But now in terms of uh, non-free agency offseason moves, Bloom is anything if not creative. So the draft, I think, this year's might be a little weird for any number of reasons. But, I mean, and I'm not sure how much work you've done on this end, but are there any 
prospects that Red Sox fans could be getting excited about that would kind of maybe take some of the sting off of how bad this season was? Yeah, I think the, the two top guys are Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter, who I think are both Vanderbilt pitchers. Red Sox are probably not going to be in the mix for either of those two guys. So, um, But it should be a deep draft class, considering there's only five rounds this year. Um, it should be a really deep draft class. And um, they need they need you know to start developing starting pitching. Um, this will be uh, they've only picked to the top ten like three times since 1963, and those three picks were Trot Nixon, Andrew Benatendi, and Trey Ball. So they went like one and a half or three on those, I'd say, uh, because Trot Nixon was a stud, Benatendi, the jury's still out on, and Trey Ball was a huge bust. So um, hopefully the next top ten pick will be uh, the best of that group. Ideally, yes, ideally. And then finally, uh, obviously a lot of this depends on what the Red Sox do end up deciding to do this offseason. But you said it doesn't seem like they're going to strip everything down to the studs. They're getting a sale back at the very least. So where should fans' expectations be for next year? Is this is this 2020 strange, bizarre season sort of just a dip and then they go back to being at least at the bottom of the playoff mix? Or is this the beginning of a long, hard climb back towards playoff contention? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the intention was ever to tank in 2020. Um, but once Eduardo Rodriguez and Chris Sale go down, you have Martin Perez and Nathan Evaldi as your only two starting pitchers. Uh, that's kind of what's going to happen naturally. So, um, you know, I wrote the other night, the starting pitching mix, if Sale and Eduardo Rodriguez come back, were two big ifs. I wouldn't expect either of them by opening day, honestly. And Rodriguez's case is a path that nobody's really traveled. It's a heart condition, and they're going to take it very seriously. Sale, you know, with Tommy John, it's, a less serious situation and, and obviously something a bunch of guys come back from. So, but when you have those guys in the rotation, let's say by the all-star break, hopefully for the Red Sox, and you have those guys, Evaldi and Perez, who both fit pretty well this year. In addition, you have Tanner Houck, Nick Pavetta, and whoever you've added over the off season. And Brian Mata, who's the top pitching prospect, the highest ceiling guy could be in the mix by that point too. So all of a sudden they've gone from like two arms to seven, um, you know, in the mix for next year, I expect they'll even add to that. Um, you know, there's a few guys that are, are going to be kind of the reclamation project types that have had major league success. Jake Odorizzi is a guy in Tampa that Bloom has, that I think would be a great fit. Um, he's been in Minnesota. I know he missed time with injury behind Trevor Bauer this year on the free agent market. It's a ton of question marks. I mean, you have Bauer and then you have like Stroman who missed most of the year. Robbie Ray, who had a down year. Mike Miner had a down year. Um, but if these guys are only getting a couple million, three million for a one-year deal, the Red Sox are going to probably be in on them and see what they can get. If not just as fill-ins at the beginning of the year for Sale and Rodriguez, then for something long-term. So they have options. I mean, the uh, the Martin Perez signing, I think, is better than a lot of people are giving it credit for. He'll pitch tonight. His ERA is under four and then could dip. And all these games, you see these ERAs fluctuating wildly because everybody's making only like 10 starts for the whole season. So um, they're actually kind of have a good base there. And positionally, the lineup, I mean, obviously, Verdugo has been, as, as uh, Renicky said yesterday, the team MVP. You build that with Bogarts and Devers and Dahlbeck, and maybe you have something in Christian Arroyo. You have Vasquez coming back, Ben Attendee, Jaron Duran. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good core. It really is. I think um, if there was a time to be absolutely horrible, which they were for most of the year, it is the 2020 season, which people are going to remember as a fluke anyway. Um, and uh, I think the work starts for 2021 now, and I, I could see them contending for sure. All right. Well, like you said, it's, if anything, an interesting time to be a fan of the Boston Red Sox. It will be a very entertaining couple of months at the very least. And 
hopefully this is just, you know, one of those bad seasons that everybody has. Even the Boston Red Sox and all of their lengthy franchise history are not immune to having everything go wrong for a season. So, right. Wild experience to cover it, I'm sure. But moving on to the last part of the podcast here, a couple quick hitters. Number one, what, and this could be from any perspective at all, what is your favorite baseball memory? Um, there's a few, but uh, my first game at Fenway with my dad, my uncle, and my grandpa was Derek Lowe's no-hitter. Um, my first Red MLB game ever. That was in April 2002, so I was six. Um, and you, you walk in, you see that your first environment, it's obviously a no hitter at Fenway becomes like a playoff atmosphere. So I was hooked from then. So I think it's going to be always hard to beat, you know, that first game, um, you know, covering a couple world series are obviously up there, but nothing, nothing I, I think will ever beat that. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, what is your favorite story that you've written so far in your career? If you have one. Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Uh, again, I'll try to. Uh, uh, Tanner Houck has a really cool story where his uh, sister was adopted, and so even before he broke into the majors, he like spent so much time and so much energy and uh, money on a charity to help uh, kids in a home get placed with families in his hometown, which is in southern Illinois. And you know, I think it's. It, I wrote that in spring training, and it's kind of come up in the last couple of days because he's donating a hundred dollars per strikeout to his own charity to me it's like it stood out just because he uh you see a lot of guys who are in the majors and are established stars doing charity work and like that's kind of almost an expectation now you have a huge platform see if you can make a difference but this is from the day he was in professional ball yeah he was a first round pick yeah he's a high profile prospect but not at the level of a major leaguer um and to see how much time he really poured into it he's a guy that you know not just talk the talk but walk the walk and talking to him in the spring training clubhouse in Fort Myers for um, a long time um, about this, you know, it just, to me was, uh, was one of those stories where you could just really tell um, that he really cares. And, and it was uh, really fun to write. Absolutely. That is a great story. And those are sometimes usually off. I would even say the best stories to write. Um, what, and this, I'm interested to hear your answer here as a fellow Boston guy. Uh, what is your go-to spot to eat in Boston? Oh, um, well, it's a little hard right now, but um, I I really like uh, Trillium at the Seaport. That's kind of new, but um, and then obviously there's there's plenty of places in the North End that are, are all you know really um, really up there too, and, and my my family's from there, so. Yeah, that makes that that's uh, a a big piece of it. But yeah, Trillium in the Seaport. If anybody hasn't checked it out, it's great. Yeah, I think just saying the North End is also an acceptable answer, all things considered. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, so for these last two questions, uh, so the first one is just generally, you know, what's something about your job that you feel like other people don't know or don't really understand? Uh, that we're not fans of the Red Sox, I think is the biggest thing. I mean, that's that's always like, uh, you know, always funny. You know that people are, you know, th think that we really root for the team. I think it's just, I think it's the thing everybody underestimates is that, you know, you, your role changes. You know, you have to be objective number one, and then your experiences with people dictate what you root for, um, and the stories you write dictate what you root for. 
you know, it's funny, you know, I'm writing a game story and, and it's a big Red Sox Yankees game and I have it written. The Yankees have won and I'm, you know, it's ready to go final out. I hit publish and you know, the Red Sox have a guy on third. I don't want that guy to score because then we're going to extras and I got to write, rewrite this 600 word thing, you know? So thinking about that as a kid, like that I'd be actively rooting for the Yankees to win in that situation would be like blasphemous. But when you really get into it, um, you, you root for your stories, you root for good people and um, you root for interesting things, which like I said, we have plenty. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, uh, and you know, you don't have like 20 years of experience to draw or anything, but I'm still interested in hearing your answer. Is there anything that you now know about this industry that you wish you knew back when you were just starting out in high school trying to scrape scoops off the internet? Yeah, that it's just so multifaceted. Um, and it, it's just, you know, I, I was one-dimensional then because that's what I was doing. I was trying to break the story. But now, you know, there's so many things you have to do. I host a podcast. I write. Um, you know, we did Facebook lives. We do Facebook lives, you know, during normal times when we can get together. Um, you know, there's features, there's columns, there's analysis. There's so many things that you have to do. There's interview techniques and, um, you know, networking. There's just so many different factors to it. There's so many different aspects of it that you can't be one dimensional. And that was a great piece of advice that a lot of people, whether it was Ken Rosenthal or, you know, Jeff Passan or other people said, it's like, okay, you can be this insider and you can do it, but you do it. and there's a, there's a point where that's not going to be enough and nobody's going to hire you just to do that. So, um, you know, you look at these guys and that's what they're known for, but they're also incredible writers. They're incredible analysts. They're, they're good opinions and they're where they are for a reason, not just because of their contacts, but because of their skills and everything else. And even on TV, I mean, those guys, all these guys are on TV all the time. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of aspects to it. That's something I hope I can teach in the class where, you, gotta, you can't really hone in on one skill now. you got to be really good at a lot of things. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm good at a lot of things, but I'm working on them. So that's a start. Yep. Journalists, we're always learning. You're going to have your first lesson from your uh, roommate history teacher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it'll be exciting to uh, learn how to teach remotely. He's trying to figure it out right now. I'm sure like every other teacher is. So I'm sure I'll gain a huge appreciation for teachers um, by doing this only for a few classes. But it'll be it'll be fun something new definitely like any good journalist you use any any and all resources at your disposal right exactly especially if they live uh if they sleep 15 feet away from where i do so <laughs> exactly exactly all right chris thank you so much for appearing on the podcast really appreciate it i thought that you know you really explained a lot of about a lot about this industry really well and i think your students are gonna enjoy it i hope so well thank you i appreciate you having me of course, and thank you, listener, as always, for tuning in to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.